Hello and welcome to the Human and Machine podcast. My name is Yaku. I am your co-host as always here with my co-host Lenny, Lenny Smith. Lenny, welcome back. Oh, thanks, your... Yaku. It's uh, quite a miserable day outside. It's uh, quite a rainy day here in Joburg today. Uh, but be glad to be back to shoot another podcast. Can't believe it's episode number 17. 17. Podcast yeah. number 17 has been phenomenal to everybody listening. Thank you so much for your support, suggestions, um, and just topic topics and conversations we've been having. Thank you for listening and thank you for spreading the word. We appreciate the support. Uh, we are, of course, the Human and Machine podcast talking about everything in the industrial, manufacturing, landscape, technology, uh, best practice, um, Topic for today is a fascinating one, one we, we should, should have covered a, a long time ago already, um, is the topic of cybersecurity. And uh, we're quite fortunate this week to be chatting with Brian Pinnock. Brian is the is a Senior Director of Sales Engineering at Mimecast, a uh, big global uh, cybersecurity business. And Lenny, we've, we've often, I think everything we've spoken about over the past couple of weeks and episodes on IoT industry 4.0 conversions of IT and OT, all of these topics, I think one of the underlying themes um, that not only in the podcast, but also through discussions, this day-to-day discussions has been coming out as the topic of cybersecurity. No, definitely. I think um, we've been talking IoT, well, industrial IoT uh, quite a lot in a lot of our podcast series. Um, analysts predict that by 2025, we would yeah. have 21.5 billion IoT devices connected. It's crazy. Uh, that's insane. Um, and if we haven't had enough three-letter acronyms in this industry, then we're going to definitely <laughs> learn a, little bit more, a, lot of, a lot of them today as well. Um, but the, the problem that we're seeing is that these um, devices that bridge kind of the, the IoT, the OT, and the IT gap, uh, they're considered to be CPS systems. Now, CPS is is considered a cyber physical system. Yeah, and that's edge more edge type. More edge today. types, and okay. and the reason why they 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 see that for edge devices is because they are the the device that that bridge the both the digital world, obviously yes. the connection to the cloud, yeah. but also have that connection to the physical world because they Correct. connect to the physical devices, and they say that these CPS CPS devices are great adversaries obviously for people to try hacks yes. and connect um so yeah it is something that that is really going to be targeted when we go forward into this um well we think it is well, we, we think we, it we, is we, that's what to, they say we're not yeah. the experts that's why we have the brian, brian there, and, uh, exactly. and i think everything we've spoken about industry 4.0 and the proliferation of devices and, and IoT and edge is, you know, what are those threat, what does the threat landscape look like, where where do we see the threats coming from? So, Brian, it was a very long intro. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, we, can, we tend to do this sometimes, but welcome to the Human and Machine podcast. It's really cool to be chatting to you today. Thank you very much. So, I, I, I suppose before we get into the, into the what the landscape looks like and what is happening, and I'm sure you see some really scary stuff in your role and what you guys do every day, you see some really scary stuff. You've been in this industry for a while. Yeah, no, I have. Um, I mean, maybe just to give you a little bit of my background, um, I kind of finished university in the early 1990s, and I guess cybersecurity back then was relatively straightforward. And the reason I'm sort of mentioning it is, um, it's kind of, the, there was just about the time of the advent of the internet, and we started learning some very hard lessons in the cybersecurity side of things. So it started out with, you know, the initial attacks came at the endpoints with viruses, and we had all kinds of interesting viruses back in those days. And they were yeah. relatively easy to stop because networks weren't, you know, that pervasive yet, and they were quite segmented. 
Um, but as the internet grew and everything started to connect together, these viruses just found a way to spread dramatically. I guess, you know, the, the current COVID-19 thing is, is a great uh, analogy for that. But yeah. at, the, at the end of the day, people were still focused on perimeter, protecting their perimeter because networks were very much centered around you know, the, you know, the data center and, and the kind of head office and that sort of thing. Um, and then the endpoints and it got, it didn't get much more sophisticated than that. And if you want to mm. use that as an analogy for IOT today, that's kind of where things are. It's almost like we've thrown out all of those security learnings that we got in the early 1990s, you know, hard one learnings. And, and we kind of starting back at, you know, from scratch again with, uh, with that, um, Kind of in the mid, early to mid 2000s, I wasn't that focused on cybersecurity side of things. I was more in, you know, network-based side of um, kind of industries. I worked for companies like Dimension Data. We actually yeah. started um, my own company for a while that did sort of systems integration type work. Uh, okay. Again, very very network focus, and then moved into a research and development type position at a company called Internet Solutions, which has now been folded into Dimension Data, and that That's started right. getting me back into cybersecurity. And in fact, it was quite amazing how much things had changed. And we can maybe talk a little bit about why things are so different now than they were kind of earlier on. You know, what, what has actually fundamentally changed? Yeah. Um, I then moved into Mimecast in 2016, and that really sort of kind of re-immersed me in the whole security landscape side of things. And very and, much uh, at the forefront, eh? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, email is kind of the number one attack vector still, and that is probably the, the sort of core of what Mimecast does. Obviously, we do web security and a number of other things as well, um, which we can chat about as far as it kind of impacts cybersecurity as a whole. But but that's been you know, sort of a huge steep learning curve for me um, as to just how much things have changed and moved on and how much more severe things have actually got than they were, say, even as a as, uh, short time ago as kind of 2012. Um, there's been a dramatic change. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. We were chatting beforehand. We were we were saying in our world in the manufacturing and the OT world specifically, you know, cybersecurity was something that was very much placed on the map when when we first heard about the Stuxnet virus affecting all the, I think at that time or what was focused on Siemens uh, control systems, focusing key infrastructure and, and water and wastewater, and that's when it became very prevalent. But I, it's very interesting what you said, uh, and maybe this is a massive unknown to people, is that email, even though we speak about edge uh, intrusion and edge and devices and, and, and the threats presented in that world. It's fascinating how email is the number one attack vector. That's, that's absolutely fascinating. And I think uh, certainly our listeners and people in our industry don't know that. Yeah, and I think particularly people who are not too focused on, you know, this, the whole cybersecurity picture, often a sort of naive view as well, my email is not that important to me, I can actually live without my email. So I yeah. don't really need to defend and protect my email as much as maybe I need to defend and protect my operational support systems and business support systems. And, and the reality is we're not saying, look, there is obviously a degree email is a lot more important than people realize, but that's a separate issue. But yeah. it's, it's, the, it's the initial entry points, the initial foothold that uh, cyber attackers use to get into organizations. And then from there, they spread laterally and start impacting, you know, different types of systems, whether they're business systems or production systems. Um, and that's what people don't realize is, is if you had to design the perfect system to get into just about every company in the world, you know, sort of a, a backdoor in, that was very, very hard to close, you'd probably design something that looked a lot like email. Um, and, and that's becoming that's a challenge. Yeah, I'm thinking about the communication. I mean, that we typically see, let's call it the information value chain that we have in your typical manufacturing business. It's fascinating that all of that outside of outside of threats, perhaps, it's still fascinating that a lot of the comms internally, and, and these are mission critical comms in terms of how 
departments communicate around with each other around production data, around um, alerts that happen, uh, is all email based. So I mean, once uh, you know, and the ability for a system to actually interact with people via email, uh, that's that just presents a much bigger threat to these manufacturing companies. If email is the primary way that communication happens, not only between people but also machines and people. Yeah, we actually find that quite often. It doesn't matter how sophisticated an organization is. They might have a very highly digitized um, enterprise resource planning system and a very, very, um, what's the word I'm looking for, sort of formalized type data system. Um, and structured data is the kind of word that I'm, and they're quite good at protecting that. But often you find there's elements of that which are, which are part of the critical path of either manufacturing something or getting it to market. So we've seen organizations where the manufacturing side was absolutely fine, but they used email as a kind of informal workflow system for, for their logistics. So it didn't matter that they could manufacture everything, they just couldn't get it out of the, you know, in, from, from the production facilities to the warehouse facilities and beyond because the email was down. You know, so you see that sort of thing. It is very much what we call your unstructured data. And it's one of the hardest things to, first of all, protect um, and then second of all, to kind of manage and make sure that it's, you know, you don't have things like data leaks and things, because there's a lot of um, corporate intellectual property that is, you know, kept in things like email, things like Word documents, things like PowerPoint slides. Um, yeah. It's kind of all sitting in email. It's like the corporate memory almost in a way. Yeah, 100%. And for manufacturing, I mean, if we think about, um, you know, who would know the reasons why, I, I would imagine that very often, more than often, it's monetary. But if we look at it in the manufacturing world, um, uh, I don't know, you, you would need to tell us in terms of some of the objectives and motives behind these attacks. I think the one that you've just mentioned now is, is, is very, very important is about intellectual property, competitive advantage that exists within a business that would typically be the objective to get that. Um, ransomware, um, holding operations and data hostage. Uh, is that what you find? Some of the some of the motives behind these attacks and intrusions? Yeah, so I think what you first got to understand, and this is also something, if you're not sort of really up to date with what's happening in the, the cybersecurity landscape, um, and the media, unfortunately, is not our friend in this space. They always put that picture of that sort of hacker with a hoodie and, you know, <laughs> often little, you know, ones and zeros floating around them. Um, and that's not what your typical cyber threat actor actually looks like anymore. What you actually have are highly sophisticated networks. Um, they run as a business um, and they can they can take on various forms. So sometimes they are nation state or nation state sponsored actors and that can be quite important if you are part of um, you know critical infrastructure of some kind. You know often they target that for you know put, putting you know sort of sleep of malware into your into your systems so that they can maybe take down um, production facilities at a later date. So there's a whole bunch of reasons that your um, uh, state-sponsored actors might be interested in, in, in industrial sort of side of things. Um, Especially with critical infrastructure like uh, water waste, water treatment plants, power generation plants. And these are obviously some of the, some of the folks that we deal with on a daily basis. And that's obviously a massive concern for them. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and in fact, what's interesting is the sort of definition of critical infrastructure has actually got a lot broader quite recently. Um, so, you know, organizations that may not necessarily have considered themselves critical infrastructure are actually now part of critical infrastructure for exactly this reason. Is this, um, it, it, it serves a political purpose to potentially cause some degree of disruption, you know, and 
it's it's quite interesting. You know, if you if you wanted to create a, a weapon against a country, um, what you would want is something that's quite sophisticated that you could dial up or dial back. You know, if you just throw a nuclear weapon at a dam or a power station or something, that's kind of you know very blunt instrument. Whereas if you just caused small disruptions, you could potentially you know cause instability in a political system somewhere. So there's a lot that nation state actors are interested in. Um, more often than not, though, they're interested in information. I mean, what we've seen. Uh, in South Africa specifically, um, is and we we we're, at Mimecast we don't do what we call threat attribution, and there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. I'll, I'll leave it to your imagination which types of countries would be interested in this sort of data. Okay. But quite often, what they've got is they're actually just yeah. they're, they're <laughs> listening. Name it on one hand. <laughs> yeah, and 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 sometimes there are false flag efforts, but more often than not, you know, where they smoke this fire, and what it is, what it seems to be is is exactly what it is, because you know, often they're not even highly sophisticated, because manufacturing typically is not that highly sophisticated when it comes to cyber protection. Yes. Um, and and I say that as as compared to, for example, say financial services, which is generally a lot more mature with a lot more sort of people involved. Um, yeah. So what we've seen is a number of things. So, so you can actually split the types of attacks up into um, low sophistication, high volume, and that you could call kind of almost a spray and pray type attack. And really what they're doing, they're saying, if you're the kind of organization that is very weak on your cyber, you know, cyber hygiene, you've got a lot of holes, you've got a lot of unpatched systems, all of those kind of things, we're going to throw a whole bunch of stuff at you and some of it might stick. I and those are good. generally... Yeah, th th those are kind of fairly simple and, and, and relatively easy if you just do all the right things um, to, to block. Where, where it gets a little bit more challenging is when you have the low volume, high sophistication type attacks. And that would be someone who wants to get into your network and, and so I'm taking a long time to get to the example, but to, for example, just watch production schedules. Um, that kind of information is, is, is super valuable to certain individuals. And we've seen that before where organizations you know, found, you know, they did penetration testing and found that they'd actually been penetrated and then realized there was actually malware on their, on their systems that was apparently doing nothing other than reporting back on what was going on with their, wow. um, their SCADA systems and things like that. Um, and, you know, one is only making a supposition as to why would they want to do that as opposed to bringing it down. And it really is just to get a view of, of just what the kind of capacity and capability is of organ and if you think about that in the sort of context of of, of one production facility or one factory or whatever probably not that meaningful if you think yeah. about if you could get that across an entire country there's a lot of you know very very good Absolutely. information that you're getting um or an entire about industry an entire industry relating to that country could be very valuable exactly yeah the other things that we see are sometimes ransomware i mean that's that's a very relatively simple thing as i say attackers typically are after Two things, and it's normally, you know, if, if they're just after information, the second order effect is they want to monetize that information in some way. Mm -hmm. um, if they're after, you know, and sometimes they're after actually dropping malware literally into your into your space. And and ransomware is kind of a combination of those things because if I had to steal all your information, it's got to be valuable to someone. So I can potentially sell it on the open market in some way. But the yeah. one organization that it's the most valuable to is yourself. So if I have to block off all of your production systems or your business support systems, whatever they might be, and and hold you to ransom, you're the one person who's going to actually pay me money, or the most likely person to actually pay me money to to get that back. So ransomware is kind of almost an in-place combination of those two things: control the information and then and then monetize it in in place. Um, but we see, I mean, uh, there's a whole bunch of ones, and and maybe let's just talk about them in general. Probably the the, the next biggest one, which is not specific to um, you're sort of heavy in, or light industry for that matter, it's across the board, but it's quite amazing how 
effective it is is something we call business email compromise and that's where there's no actual malware or sort of malicious links or anything sent in we literally just uh, if we're a threat actor we send you uh, or the appropriate person an email that purports to be you know it's an impersonation email pretends to be your ceo or your cfo and yeah. has some kind of urgent message to say please pay us money um you know we've got a, a huge deal that's pending on you doing a deposit of some kind yeah. Um, and and we've seen large organization airplane parts manufacturers in Austria. I think the biggest one it was something like 50 million euros over the course of about six or seven different um, stages of this particular attack. Um, and that comes back to the whole human error and people being. And I don't want to use the word gullible, but I think trusting. You know, our natural state of mind Absolutely. is not to be is 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 to be trusting. And and you know, if you, if, especially if you're dealing with someone you believe is is someone inside your organization. Um, yes. So yeah, those those would be the big ones. Um, so so on the sorry yeah, and there's there's actually examples of that. Um, on, um, in 2019, uh, we spoke about state-sponsored attack. There was a, a state-sponsored attack, a Russian state-sponsored attack, um, trying to use Don't these. I, the Russians. No, sorry, it's it's it's, <laughs> it's, it's facts. Um, <laughs> you said you can call them and fire on your on your fingers, but uh, it's fact. Um, and they exactly that. Um, Brian, you also spoke about devices that could potentially become a hole, plug a hole in your in your security device. Yeah. Um, they used a VoIP phone. Uh, they tried a VoIP phone, an office printer, even a network video recorder, and they found a way to to get in. And exactly that, um, that these high volume um, attack. Luckily, not trying to steal information. Uh, they call it a, a, another acronym for us for today: a DDoS or a distributed denial of service attack. Oof, yeah, we're not going to get into that one. I think. But means you pretty <laughs> much just overwhelm the computer system with traffic, and you pretty much kill it. Yeah. But the point is 100%. Um, with this onslaught of IoT, and I think the ease of just marketing in absolutely becomes a whole. And if you don't cater for that correctly, then yeah. And Brian, what, what we've seen on our side, at least the, the conversations that we have on a daily basis, is that you know, over the last couple of years in the manufacturing world, what has been a little bit frustrating for the folks on our side is that the two networks were very separate. So your, mm. your manufacturing plant for was on a was was on a specific network, and then the rest of your business was on another network. And the plant floor was always seen to be intrinsically it was safe, it was separate, it was secure. Um, but now with all of these different digital transformation initiatives that that uh, most of the manufacturers are kicking off, there's a big drive to get all of that onto one network. And obviously, with that, you've got the exposed risk and, and ease of use to get access to, to, to those systems and those machines. And obviously, on the back of that, cybersecurity is now all of a sudden for these manufacturers, for most of them, just based on the conversations that we've had, something that they have to brush up their, their education on, their understanding. Um, they have to consider it a lot more than what they have in the past. And all of a sudden, it's, it's a big topic for them. Um, and that's yeah, and it's quite a IT and OT mm -hmm. convergence. <clears throat> Sorry. Yeah. yeah. If you if you if you go back in time a little bit, you can actually see why it's problematic. You know, if you go back to the the good old SCADA systems, they tended not to be TCP/IP. Um, yeah. They tended to be you know these fairly arcane type uh, protocols, typically serial RS four four nine and RS two three two and those sorts of things. They, they, but they were very very separate. They um, yeah, weren't built to be online. No. Mm. No, absolutely. Your other problem that you've got with IoT type systems, um, and I, it's a universal problem, is 
in, in the old days, because of the cost of doing something, you had to make, it was very, very expensive to have a multi-purpose computer, but much, much cheaper to have something that was custom made to do one task. And if something's custom made to do one task, it's very, very hard to fool it into doing something else. Um, what we're seeing now is this rise of very, very cheap multi-purpose computers. You know, the Raspberry Pi is the most famous, but there yeah. are literally hundreds of of knockoffs of equivalent sorts of things. And the trouble with that though, is you might have taken a multi-purpose computer and you've loaded some software on it to make it do a specific task, but there's a whole bunch of open ports and, and capabilities built into that multi-purpose computer now that could be used for a number of other, other things. And they're effectively, you know, sort of security vulnerabilities that are just sort of waiting to be exploited. So it's much, exactly. much harder to, to defend against these. Exactly. And you, you probably you installed the, the OS that you got five years ago and you left it and you never updated the firmware and the thing with the latest yeah. <laughs> you know, security patches that comes before because that it's not OS priority. because it's not priority. So 100%, we see a lot that an IoT device is left uh, with the original firmware and nobody really updates those things anymore. And Brady, 100% correct. And I think why that a lot of that is happening is when we talk about these digital transformation projects, especially in our world of mining, manufacturing and infrastructure, scaling is a massive consideration in terms of cost. So all of a sudden the, the standards in terms of what is acceptable as far as the hardware goes, drops significantly because it becomes purely a cost thing. Uh, and, and some of these sort of cheap and nasty kind of edge devices are, are, are okay because it, it helps us with scaling and reaching the kind of volume of, of connectivity that we need. Um, and, and very often, you know, the budget is, uh, doesn't allow for that kind of scaling around the devices with so these cheap and nasties and everything that they will allow potentially the risks that they present are okay. And people and, and you know, these guys, these leaders in these industries are okay with that because it, it fits the budget, it fits the bill. And it's a challenge. I mean, you see it in healthcare with these sort of real-time operating systems. Um, and obviously healthcare, there's literally lives on the line. So it's much easier to kind of create standards and say that you may not do X and you may not do Y. It's a little bit harder to do that in an industrial side of things. Obviously there's, there's health and safety aspects and there are sometimes lives on the line, depending on what systems you're talking about. But mm -hmm. it's the, you know, you, you can sometimes use these multi-purpose operating systems that were never designed for real-time use. Um, mm -hmm. And that also talks to the patching side of things. You know, it's all very well in a, a corporate type environment, you know, a head office to say you've got to patch and make sure that everything's up to date. And, and it is a key aspect of cybersecurity is making sure you're always up to date. It's much harder to do that in say a 24 seven facility where you can't actually have downtime and, and you can't have the, you run the risk of, of loading a patch that might block some, uh, you know, vulnerability that, that, you know, may or may not be, you know, exploitable. And the risk that you face on that front is you might actually bring down your whole production facility because there's some unforeseen consequence of patching your system. So, yeah. it, so it does get a lot harder in the industrial space than it is, for example, in the sort of enterprise corporate space. Yeah. Brian, you mentioned something uh, I just want to ask you about. So you mentioned human error. So <laughs> in our world, um, obviously, we're you know, in, a, in a live kind of production environment where, where safety is obviously um, uh, a massive crit uh, critical factor. Um, especially in a mine, you can imagine. Human error is perhaps something a little bit different to your definition of human error. Uh, when you say human error, it, it sounds quite scary. What, it, what does that mean in terms of cybersecurity and awareness and, and maybe some observations around human error? So I actually like flipping that around and calling it the human firewall. Um, so what you can do is there's no security system that's completely invulnerable. And I think that's the first thing everybody needs to realize is um, any any chief information security officer 
worth of salt will tell that to the board when they get appointed to say my job here is not to stop you being breached my job here is to work is to ensure that the consequences of that breach are as as limited as possible and the recovery from that breach is as quick as possible um, and one of your biggest vulnerabilities is your people um, mm. and what you can do is you can turn that vulnerability or that weak point into a strength by creating a human firewall and trying to you can never entirely eliminate but try to reduce human error um, and and we've actually got some really good statistics there's obviously a whole bunch of psychology that's involved here so the first way we try to do that in the cybersecurity industry was put people down in front of these long boring sort of um, cybersecurity sort of policies and procedures and, and awareness training type things and yeah. we bored the life out of everyone and then we wondered why nobody paid attention um, so uh, what's quite interesting actually Michael Madden who started a company called Atata who was ultimately born by my uh, bought up by Mimecast actually recognized this he was in the Treasury Department the US Treasury Department and in the cybersecurity section of things and he actually looked around while he was you know doing his mandatory cybersecurity training and he looked at these are all cybersecurity professionals and yes. what they'd done is they put their cybersecurity training video onto one screen and were completely ignoring it, looking at something else and literally just running the clock down on this video that they were all forced to watch. And he <laughs> said, you know, th this system's completely broken. We need to do this another way. In other so, words, in no way measuring the actual effectiveness of the training. Not at all. It was literally a, a hmm. checkbox exercise. It was a checkbox and, and, and everybody was okay because they attended and we were good. Our posture is good and our hygiene is good. Correct. Um, and this applies probably to things like health and safety and all of these sorts of things where, you know, mm -hmm. if you think you just send someone a video that they've got to watch and you think they're watching it, um, they probably aren't. And even if they are watching it, they're not uh, they're not paying attention. And so he then did a whole bunch of research and, and, and there's quite a lot of very, very good um, research data on this now is that what you've got to do to make people actually engage with the content is keep it short. Um, keep it engaging. Humor is a really good way to do that. Make it repeatable um, and, and make it meaningful in people's lives and make them part of the solution to the problem um, and, and just keep kind of, you know, cycling through that. And what's quite nice is we've actually been running for a couple of years now with a system and we then did a, a sort of little bit of research on our own platform to say those of our clients who actually bought the Mimecast awareness training, which kind of uh, works on those principles where it's yeah. short engaging uses humor all of those kind of things versus clients of ours who either had other awareness training um, systems or who had no awareness training systems and mm. we then looked at what their riskiness was for certain end you know for different end users and we found that users who had mimecast awareness training were five times less likely to be taken in by things like phishing attacks and clicking on bad links and all of those kinds of things. So the, wow. the, the kind of numbers, the hard numbers are in now. Um, and I think that's where, you know, if you, I'm not saying you necessarily have to buy a Mimecast if you want to do that, but what you need to do if you've got, if you're trying to build your human firewall is you actually need to look past the vanity metrics of number yeah. of people who've watched videos, whatever. You've really got to look at engagement and ultimately mm -hmm. look at, are they actually doing bad things anymore? Or are they not? And, and, and you've got to find a way to make that measurable. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, it, uh, I mean, the the importance, we've just, uh, uh, the month of October was obviously Cybersecurity Awareness Month. Um, and, you know, one of the, my immediate thoughts when, 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 when I realized or at least saw that it was Cybersecurity Month is, where did it start? Where does it come from? Why a whole month dedicated to cybersecurity awareness? Um, and, and that's when the, the topic of human error and the, you know, the human firewall, as you call it, and the importance of, us and our interactions every day and the decisions and choices we make that's when it became quite quite uh, 
quite obvious to me with the importance of, of cybersecurity awareness that we, in fact, had a whole month dedicated to it, globally had a whole month dedicated to it. Yeah, so it, it started actually in, I might have my date wrong, but it's, it's in the early 2000s, about 2004, um, and it started in the US um, between the National Cybersecurity Alliance and the US Department of Homeland Security, if I'm not mistaken. And it's quite interesting how that's grown over the years. It really kind of was below the radar for a very, very long time. And now it's actually taken on, um, an, well, first of all, national in America and then became international. Um, mm. And there's been a kind of a love-hate relationship between the sort of business community in the U.S. And, and the government because the government on the one hand is trying to encourage the, the business community to, to, to be more cyber aware and to build better cyber security. Um, there's actually a, a really good observation um, in the Ukraine when the NotPetya virus hit. Mm. You know, it obviously took down, you know, a, a big chunk of the Ukraine and it took to, and, and it also then spread globally um, and became a kind of global pandemic. Um, mm. And probably, you know, and there were some very, very big manufacturing organizations that were hit and logistics companies. I mean, there was Maersk, there was um, mm. TNT, which was part of FedEx. There was a, there was a number of, of companies. There were some um, pharmaceutical companies, et cetera. So, that, so there were companies that were badly hit. What people don't talk about, though, and this is kind of where I'm alluding to, is the companies that weren't hit um, and, and survived quite quite well during during this pandemic. And, and there, there were a number of them actually physically located in, in Ukraine, had, had offices in Ukraine who would, in theory, have been exposed to that. And really what they did is all of the cybersecurity basics, they did their patch management rights, they had the, the latest version of patches, et cetera, and they, and they weren't hit. And that's a critical part because things like NotPetya and the WannaCry virus of, of a number of, of years ago um, were actually the consequence of um, cybersecurity tool sets that were lost by the um, US government. Um, and they kind of got into what we call got into the wild and then started getting used by nation state actors. And, and then unfortunately the nation state actors then lose their tools and they're careless with them and then, then become in the hands of cyber criminals. And that's actually one of the reasons that I alluded to earlier as to why the threat landscape has got so much more severe is you, is you had tool sets that were being used by you know, the 007, the cyber 007s of this world, which, which you know, were, were well beyond the capabilities of your average cyber criminal. And yes. now, unfortunately, they've carelessly kind of left those, you know, out for other people to use. So you've got these very, very sophisticated government level, you know, um, arsenals of, of, of weapons. And it's not just the Americans, you know, it's, it's, it's everybody. Um, they've all found ways to, to, to manage to stumble and lose their tool sets. And, and the cyber criminals have now picked them up, which makes all of us, you know, much more um, vulnerable. But at the same time, the U.S. government's done a, a huge job in terms of creating standards and things like that, which which are bringing organisations into, you know, m having much better security posture. So that's kind of where Cybersecurity Awareness Month came, and I probably gave a little bit too much of a political tinge to it. Um, no, I'm absolutely. a little bit cynical about the U.S. government's um, and what they do, but they do a, they do a huge amount of good as well in terms of of, of this awareness and setting standards like the NIST standard for cybersecurity and things like that. So I guess the message that comes out of that ultimately is if you do all your basics right, you dramatically reduce the, the probability that you're going to get breached. And, and if you are breached, you're, you know, you find you're a lot more resilient. So your recovery, your ability to recover is significantly better. Yeah. Now, I want to just touch on that, Brian, because um, you mentioned that we kind of lost all the stuff that we've done in the 90s. Uh, it's almost like like the, the good stuff that we've done in the 90s when with with incorporating process networks, et cetera, 
um, with the advent of IoT devices, it's almost like we kind of lost the, those principles. Um, if we think about the 1990s, um, we call it as the good old automation pyramid. Uh, they actually uh, call it the yeah. PERA. The PERA is the Prudence Enterprise Reference Architecture Guide, where they develop different levels. So level zero is your equipment. Level one is your control. Level yeah. two is your SCADA. Level Level three is then your more MES up until you get to That's level five. It's almost not 100% relevant today. It isn't. got IoT on the side. But there was a very good um, way that we could segment, or segment the levels and then either by implementing a very simple DMZ or a firewall between different levels, you could segregate the way of data flowing and possible yeah. keep keep the threat. It's a typically one direction only. Keep typical one direction. Um, the problem was obviously if you need to move from let's say your level three into the upper level, you needed internet, et cetera. So that, that became a little bit, bit crazy with, with getting all those trusts and policies mm. in place. But what we're seeing now is we're not even going from level three to the internet anymore. With right IoT, we're going yeah. from level zero to level one. We're bypassing all of those firewall kind of rules that we put in place with yeah. the Pera architecture. And now we're going straight into the cloud with this, obviously exposing risk. So. I think what I'm trying to trying to ask is, you know, what is the new strategy? What is this basics that you need to go and look at and put in place? Yeah, we spoke about um, it's a uh, oh, tough question. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> right? We spoke about we spoke about um, uh, sort of aggressive patch management. Yes. We spoke about device and app controls and endpoint inventory and stuff like that. But if I if I'm a a smallish to mid kind of manufacturer uh, based somewhere in Joburg. I'm already dealing with the disruption and uh, to my operational resilience around COVID. You know, what, what are some of the key basic things, perhaps not an easy one to answer, what are some of the key basics that, that I need to consider or have in place? Sure, so in the past, it was relatively easy to talk to that. Um, I guess now you've got to think about your entire estate in, in terms of three zones. So. In the old days, zone one was your perimeter and you needed to protect your perimeter and your perimeter was very easily defined. Um, and you did that with a firewall. So it was perimeter and endpoint and, and then patch management and, you, and you'd mostly covered 90% of, of your problem. Um, there were some, obviously there's always other elements, but, but in terms of the total number of threats that are, that are hitting you, what's happened now is as people adopt cloud, they're starting to dissolve that perimeter. So you need to find ways to protect your perimeter um, in the cloud environments, you know, using something like in, in the email world, using something like Mimecast uh, secure email gateway in the web security mm. world, using something like a like a web security gateway, all of those sorts of things. So it's critical to get that perimeter because what you want to do is keep absorb as many of the threats as you possibly can away from your network uh, before they even get to you. Um, mm. the, the second zone you've got to you've got to look at is is inside your network. So those are your your actual your users, your insiders, those are your endpoints. Those are all of the those are your alerting systems that you need to put in place. The sort of canaries in the cold mine. I'm not uh, advocating any particular product set there, but there's a whole bunch. <laughs> of... <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> but but there's a whole bunch of things that you can do in zone two, which is which is assume that you're going to stop most of the things in the perimeter, but also work on the principle that something will get through and mm -hmm. work out what your insider threat looks like and, and, and could look like. 
Yeah, it's, it's absolutely the assumption that something will get in and that something that could get in could actually be one of your own people. You know, you get careless insiders, you get compromised insiders and you get malicious insiders. So your own people can either be inadvertently doing something or doing something deliberate, you know. And again, this is the whole COVID thing. Somebody might, you know, their spouse might have lost their job and they may not even want to do this, but they're desperate for extra money. And somebody's paying them to actually create vulnerabilities. We see this with the mobile operators all the time in their call centers where people are paying contact center workers to, um, you know, help them do SIM swaps and things like that. So there's a lot of you got there's a lot of kind of move towards zero trust. Only give people the the, the access to what they absolutely need to do to do their jobs. The problem is, yeah, the, the problem doesn't stop there. You then got to look outside your perimeter as well at your brand. So one of the things we see quite a little bit is what we call, um, you know, supply chain attacks, where people ah. are either using you as the supplier to whoever your client is or attacking your supply chain. So whoever your suppliers are. Um, and so you might have the most perfect security system in the world, but um, somebody else doesn't. And, 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 you know, we see that problem with the banks all the time, you know, the supply mm -hmm. chain management problem. We saw that recently with that big data breach with Experian, you know, all of the, that was all bank data that they lost, but you know, the banks were all fine, but Experian. Very, very good point, eh? especially in the manufacturing yeah. world where there is such a very high reliance on multiple suppliers. You think about, for example, a beverage manufacturing company, you know, there's almost a almost nearly a seamless integration between systems, uh, given the given, for example, the the cans that have to be delivered and how those systems communicate and preempt the next delivery. That's actually a fascinating point: is that supply chain dependence between businesses. Yeah. So, so you've got to, There's a couple of things that are very much in their infancy now, but I certainly expect to see them grow. Is this concept of threat intelligence sharing? In other words, if I see a threat on my system, I actually share it with everybody in my ecosystem. Mm -hmm. um, those kinds of things, and and really starting to leverage what you already have in terms of the tools. You know, we the, the economy is is not going to get better quickly, and we're going to have to make do with what we have, and not have to buy you know more and more expensive things necessarily. Or when we do, we must you know obviously buy carefully. And so the key issue here is, is how, how do you make what you've already bought work better? Um, yeah. And that's all about leveraging your ecosystem, um, yeah. using APIs, using threat intelligence, getting things, you know, if your firewall spots something, making sure your secure email gateway is aware of it and vice versa. If there's a piece of malware coming in into one of your suppliers, make sure that your, your endpoint protection, your antivirus is, is aware of that same piece of malware. Those yeah. kinds of things are where, are where we're going with this, but it's it's certainly not there yet, um, and and it's and it's generally quite quite problematic. And I think the other the other issue is, it, which also goes to the just accept the fact that at some point you will be breached. Um, wow. You know, there's that old um, statement saying there's only two, two, well, there's only two types of organisations, and this is quite an old saw. You know, saying those who've been breached, you know, and and those who don't know, you know, those who know they've been breached, and those who don't know they've been breached. But everybody's been breached. Um, mm. And all the you know all the statistics that you see um, kind of bear that out to in, in large part. Um, it's just a question of the severity of the breach. And I think we're going to talking about breaches. You know, once the Poppy Act, uh, Poppia, as we're supposed to call it, kicks into play in uh, right. July is next year. Is that fully ineffective? No. So we're in a grace period at the moment. Um, but one of the things that you should be doing now is actually declaring a data breach um, if if there is uh, personally identifiable information that's been lost. And and the definition of that is fairly broad you know it could literally be something like somebody's phone number or home address or email uh, that is still personally so even if somebody breaches you know some very trivial system of yours and you know you lose a database of, of potential prospects or something and it's just their, their name and email that is still a you know a notifiable 
breach that you have to tell the information regulator about. Um, and I think we're going to see this absolute spike um, towards you know July and after July next year. And everyone's going to go, what's happening? Why you know why are we suddenly seeing this massive cyber attack against South Africa? And the answer is, it's not new. We're just actually getting visibility now. Yeah. Just actually getting the visibility, yeah. Um, I'm just cautious of time. I, something we, I quickly want to uh, ask you, Brian, I'm, I'm quite interested about is, so on the topic of remote working, so in our world was what was, and I'm sure it wasn't, <clears throat> the disruption wasn't um, specific just to our industry, but all of a sudden with working from home and COVID, all of a sudden, a lot of these sort of manufacturing systems that we spoke about earlier that were not meant to be online, suddenly with, with a number of, of sort of key people and resources working from home, all of a sudden these people now had to access these systems from home. They needed to, in, in sort of ways and, and routing and tunneling that they didn't have to ever do before in the past. So a key thing for the systems that we work with is the ability for people to actually uh, connect to and operate and, and get reporting and viewing of these systems from home. Um, obviously working from home, that does present not only all of a sudden new way to sort of gain entry to the systems from home, but that presents a whole new different threat um, uh, layer or, or area that we, we didn't see in the past. Absolutely. And I mean, that's probably a whole nother hour of conversation, but just at a high level, what we saw um, is organizations, first of all, scrambling to get everybody working from home quickly. And, in, and and speed is always the enemy of security. So what we found is people having to turn off certain secure systems um, just so that they could help get everybody out there and working, you know, not necessarily patching. Your visibility is a lot weaker, so you can't actually see if somebody's been compromised. If somebody has been compromised, your time to remediate is longer. Um, but yeah, as, as you point out, it's a, it's a whole new set of vulnerabilities. Um, unless you get people who are slightly paranoid like me, and even, you know, as I say, no system is, is immune, but um, very few people have got network separation at home. Very few people have got sophisticated enterprise grade networking and security equipment at home. I mean, virtually nobody I know has their own firewall systems at home other than the very simple, you know, network address translation type um, broadband routers and things. And, all, and we saw this happening, you know, as COVID struck, we saw, um, a lot of these broadband um, routers, and there were a number of them, so you, I'm not even going to call out the brand names, suddenly yes. got attacked en masse because people, and, and again, does your ISP um, upgrade your, your your broadband router? Do you even know how to upgrade your broadband mm -hmm. router? I guarantee that there's massive vulnerabilities all around the place. And um, I'm, I'm expecting to see this become a, a major point. I mean, and it already is, this, mm -hmm. this, this home network working vulnerability combined with, as you say, this ability to connect you back to systems that should be very, very secure. Um, we saw VPN systems being attacked quite dramatically and overwhelmed. You know, they were designed for the few executives and road warriors to work remotely, not for the entire organization to work remotely. Yeah. So we saw big challenges in terms of volume um, and, and these haven't all gone away. I think they've, they've largely kind of been settled and I think a lot of companies are patting themselves on the back. But I think that's a little bit of false complacency to think that that's now been resolved. Um, and that's largely just because the threat actors don't need to. They, they work on the sort of path of least resistance. So you see them do that. that you know, if they spray and pray high volume, low sophistication attacks work, then they actually dial back on the ones that are harder to do because they're making it. It's all about making money. But mm -hmm. as we start closing up the loopholes, they find other ways to And then all they do is move into other spaces, which we just haven't had to defend against. And they find all kinds of loopholes. And then the whole cycle starts again. 
So I fully expect to see this being a, a huge area of, of focus over the next year or so. Yeah, and I'm, I suppose given the opportunistic nature of uh, of the cyber criminals or threat actors, they they prey on a topic uh, such as COVID nineteen, and and that's also an entirely new area for them to exploit and, and make use of. Yeah, and they take advantage of the sort of psychological state that people are in. People are desperate for information. People are a bit depressed. People are, you know, in a funny state of mind when you're working from home. Um, and they, they use those. So it's called social engineering. And, and it's kind of just really just a fancy name for good old fashioned fraud. But it's very, very clever. You know, it's like a con. In fact, a con is probably a better word. It's, it's a cyber con. You know, the old con man who kind of came along and snake oil salesman, they use all of those same techniques, but they do it in the digital environment and, they, and they're highly, highly effective because people, people are people. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Cool, fascinating stuff, Chief. I think, we, uh, I think we're okay on time. We probably have to wrap it up, Brian. We can probably chat to you for, for hours and it uh, sounds like really scary stuff that, that's happening out there. And uh, it's good to know that people like you are out there fighting the good fight but maybe just uh just as a, as a as a recap in terms of those zones that you mentioned if you can just give us a recap of, of the important zones i suppose we it feels like i interrupted you on that no not at all um so so zone one is really your perimeter um and and bear in mind that your perimeter is now spread out into the cloud because we've got this cloud and digital adoption that just about everybody's gone to and make sure that you've got all yeah. those loopholes and security controls in place. Zone two is inside your network, everything that involves you know, being inside the, uh, whatever that might be, people and systems. And then zone three is things like your brand and your overall ecosystem and your supply chain. Um, it's, it's everything else that's not either your, your perimeter or inside your perimeter. And as, if you can get those working effectively together, um, then you're going to go a long way to being, you know, having a really good security posture and being more cyber resilient. Okay, fantastic. My, awesome. my closing remarks, uh, maybe just on this. Thanks a lot, um, Brian. You actually answered my question 100%. Um, I feel I'll, a lot smarter now. <laughs> I, I really want our listeners um, to go and look at the zero trust principles. Uh, there's a lot of, we don't have time now to discuss how that works and exactly what that entails, but please guys go and look at zero trust principles for securing, as, as Brian said, to different zones, especially at level four and five, when mm -hmm. we talk about the, the original little hierarchy, um, especially on those business type systems, how to impl implement zero trust principles there. Um, and exactly as Brian said, when you go and define your zones, please make sure that you map your entire digital estate. Now, when we talk about that, it's not just devices, PCs, PLCs, you know, IoT devices. Think about building management systems. Think about personal, your personal people smartphones uh, that hooks onto your network. Think about, and we, we spoke about it. Nowadays, all of that connects to the plant. Exactly. And, and think about who's got access to what and from where. And as you mentioned, Brian, now with working from remote VPN connections flying everywhere, you now have vendors, maintenance people, remote workers, yeah. all of a sudden, your zone has been compromised with people that you don't even know anymore because it's yeah. it's a vendor or a or a maintenance person. So please make sure that you map that entire digital estate as 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 good as you can, obviously, um, and to then you'll be able to see what these different pathways are that could, in in essence, open up an attack from you. Yeah, scary stuff. Brian, awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Um, I'm sure we can share some of the contact details for, for yourself and, and, and the good folks at Mindcast. Maybe there's some other, um, I did a quick scan of your site. I see there's some really useful um, uh, sort of data sheets and 
and playbooks and things that can help our audience. Uh, I'm sure you're okay if we share some of those. Yes, absolutely. And thank you very much for having me on your podcast. Yeah, it was lovely chatting to you. Scary, but 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 really insightful and helpful. Thank you so much. And I think, you know, the bottom line from our perspective is that the world that we live in, the manufacturing world, um, is really a, a prime tar target for cyber attacks because of the high stakes that are involved. And I think any little bit of education, a little bit of sharing that we can do is is helpful. And, and hopefully to those people, uh, to those folks that have listened to this episode, hopefully it'll, if anything, scare you. It certainly <laughs> scared me. Uh, but also maybe give you a little bit of insight and, and uh, advice in terms of what to be aware of and what to do next. But yeah, Brian, thank you so much again for your time. Awesome chatting to you. We'll be sure, we'll, we'll be sure to share your details on the, on the description of the podcast. Thank you so much. Cool. Um, Lenny, that was episode 17. I think next week we're chatting with Walker Reynolds again. Yeah, we um, follow up. We'll follow up. Uh, kind of at the end of our podcast with Walker, we started talking about the unified namespace and unified architecture from a broker-centric kind of perspective. So we're going to kick that off again and talk a little bit about the unified namespace concept. Good stuff. Walker's obviously an IIoT and Industry 4.0 online educator. Great guy. Um, yeah, that's our second podcast with him. So that's something to look forward to for next week. Perfect. And as always, if you've got any topics, suggestions, uh, people that you'd like us to, to interview on the podcast series, please get those topics rolling in at podcast at element8.co.za. Good stuff. And as always, thank you for listening. Uh, take care of each other and look after each other and be safe. Thanks for Cheers. Bye-bye.